Okay. Well, again, uh, welcome to uh, Bear Valley and the Bear Valley Lectureship, and it's been a joy already, and I know you're in a treat and treat uh, for the next session because I've got to hear John preach uh, several times over the last few years, and in part because um, our son, Jordan, and uh, his wife, Erin, and our three grandchildren work with John and Angie there at the Katy Congregation uh, just outside of Houston. And Jordan uh, and Aaron both have been blessed, but especially Jordan in his uh, ministerial work as the associate there has had the opportunity to have a great mentor. And, uh, and he has learned a tremendous amount from John and admires him greatly, and it's just been, been very helpful to him. So, John, thank you for all that you've done, and, and Angie, the way that you both have lived your life as examples before so many, but especially our children there. And grandchildren. We're just a little bit jealous, though, of course, because they get a few more hugs from our grandchildren than uh, Carla and I do, but they're in good hands there. Um, John uh, has a rich heritage of service in the church, but uh, especially with regard to his grandparents. And if you and may have noticed walking in the hallway here, and uh, there's also one upstairs, a picture of his grandfather and grandmother. And uh, Roy Baker was uh, an interim director here back in the 70s, but he also was uh, working as the director of development, raising funds for the school, was one of the original elders in um, establishing the congregation here at Bear Valley and the school in 1965. So uh, we are just thrilled to have John with us, and I know his grandfather would have been particularly proud and, and uh, happy to know that uh, he's here today. Uh, John went to school at Texas A&M University and graduated with a degree in history. And then not long after that, he ended up at Brown Trail. Dave Miller was the director then. And then since that time, he and Angie have worked in several places. And um, Louisiana did work in Tanzania, uh, mission work there. And of course, as I've just mentioned, uh, is at Katy, Texas now. So John, we are really glad to have you and honored that you and Angie both are with us. So come preach to us, brother. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being here this afternoon. Um, we are going to be talking about Psalm 71. So if you don't have your Bible open there already, please go ahead and do that. Psalm 71. My topic assigned is called the Silver-Haired Psalm. When, uh, as John mentioned, when Angie and I lived in Tanzania, I was in my early 30s. And there's a word in Swahili, mze, M-Z-E-E, -E, right, Daniel? And mze is a word that you give to an older man. It's, it's a term of respect. And so if, a, if an older man walks into the room, uh, you would give, you would say certain words of respect to him, and that's just the way the culture works. And I found that the students in the school of preaching were calling me mze. And so I asked them why are you guys referring to me with this, you know, term that you'd give to an older man? And they said, oh, brother, we res they were trying to be politically correct. We, we really respect your ability and your knowledge, but also you have a lot of gray hair. And that was, that was their response. <laughs> they, were, they were as serious as they could be. Uh, I started going gray when I was 23 years old. And so by then, this was what my hair looked like. It's the silver-haired psalm, Psalm 71. As we spend time in life... All of us eventually arrive at a place where our age is, is advanced. And 
we in the church need to give some attention to the seasons of life. Those of us who preach God's word, those of us who work with God's people, we need to give attention in our preaching and our teaching to the seasons of life. And the reason why is because the Bible gives attention to those things. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. But then as you read through the rest of Ecclesiastes 12, there are rich images that talk about what happens when you get older, what happens as you age, and some of the uh, unfortunate things that take place. I have found, I've discovered that at different seasons of life, people are asking different questions. They're asking different questions about themselves, about God, about what spirituality looks like. For example, teenagers and those in their early 20s are trying to ask questions about their future. Where am I going to fit in in the world? What's my place? What's my identity in the world? They ask questions about who am I going to marry? Am I going to get married? They're asking those kinds of questions. What's my career going to be? But then as you get into your 30s and maybe children come along, you're asking different questions. You're asking questions about why is life seeming to go so fast all of a sudden? Why do I not have any extra time? Uh, why, is, why is life uh, so busy all the time? You get to a place in life, my wife and I, we're in our late 40s, we're in what's called the sandwich area of life, where we're caring for and being concerned about our aging parents. We're also concerned about our children who we're trying to launch into the world, empty nesters, and we're kind of in that sandwich area. And what does it look like to be spiritual in times like that? What does it look like to serve God in a time like that? As people grow into their advanced years, older years, there are some questions that especially come to mind. People start to ask questions. These questions sometimes arrive very suddenly. I'm just going to read these, and these did not originate with me, but I believe as I've talked to people who are older in their years, these questions resonate. Do I still have enough time to do all the things I've dreamed about in my past? What have I done with my life that's going to outlive me? Is there anything I can still contribute? Are the things that I've believed in and committed myself to, are they able of take, taking me, uh, capable of taking me to the end? Will we have enough money for retirement years? What if there are health problems? What if there are economic downturns? How much of my life can I still control? Does anyone realize or even care who I once was? Is anyone aware that I owned or managed a business or that I threw a mean curveball or that I taught school or that I possessed a beautiful solo voice or had an attractive face. Is my story important to anyone? If we look around and listen carefully enough, people are asking those questions in their older years. Who will be around me when I die? What's that going to be like? Is God really there for me? Those questions, those of us who preach and teach God's word, we must be sensitive to those questions. In our ministries, in our work with people, and in building bridges within the local congregation. I believe local congregations are at their best when ages are mixed in a blender. There doesn't need to be a youth group and then a middle-aged group and then an older person's group and we never interact with each other. There needs to be relationships between all age groups. But we need to be sensitive to the questions that different ages are asking as we preach and teach and proclaim God's Word. Psalm 71, as you look, has 24 verses and Psalm 71 seems to be written by an aging man. I look especially at Psalm 71, verse 9. Listen to what he says. God, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. 
And then I look at Psalm 71 and verse 18. So even the old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. This is written, it seems, by a man who was advanced in his years. And he was starting to look at the realities of life. And he was asking some of the questions that we just talked about a moment ago. And as you look at Psalm 71, it could, I suppose, be read from the point of view of a younger person. Somebody that's thinking about what will it be like when I reach my advanced years. But I really prefer to look at this. And I think, I think this is what God would have us to think about. This is someone who's grappling with some of the realities and some of the indignities and some of the questions of old age. What does it look like to have a relationship with God in our older years? A couple of features of this psalm are noteworthy before we dive into the text. In the first place, I want you to notice that this psalm borrows phrases from other psalms. It is what we might call a mashup of a lot of other psalms. For example, Psalm 71 verses 1 through 3 is a carbon copy of Psalm 31 verses 1 through 3, almost word for word. It also borrows heavily from Psalm 22, from Psalm 35, from Psalm 38, from Psalm 40, and especially from Psalm 70, the psalm immediately prior to it. Psalm 71, 6, for example, is taken from, it's reflected by Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. You've been my God from my youth. Uh, Upon you I've leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. These are thoughts that came from other psalms, and yet they've been appropriated here in Psalm 71, which leads us to observation number two about the text. It's been surmised by at least one commentary that this psalm may have been written by a priest, a Levitical priest. And if you know your Bible, Book of Numbers, chapter 4, the Levitical priests were able to serve from age 30 to age 50. So about 20 years of service is what you got as a Levitical priest. And the the commentary author surmised that maybe this was written by a Levitical priest as he's getting to the end of his term of service. Maybe he's 49, about to turn 50, and he's, he's about at the end of his service in the temple. And he's thinking about what the future holds. And he's thinking about what's going to happen to him once he is not able to work in the temple anymore. And especially leaning to this view is the fact that, like I said, this psalm is a mashup of a lot of other psalms. A lot of thoughts taken from here and there and everywhere and put into this particular psalm in the way that this psalmist would have it to be written. And also, and by the way, it's inspired. And so this is inspired mashup. But look as well as you, if you would, at verse 22. Psalm 71, verse 22, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. That would have been activity that, among others, a Levitical priest would have been involved in. And so it's very possible that this was written by an anonymous Levitical priest thinking about his older years. What do those look like? I want you to notice next, before we dive into the text, features of this psalm. This psalm especially emphasizes the righteousness or the faithfulness of God. There's a word in Hebrew that means righteousness, doing what's right. It's the same word that we read in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And the word here is translated in the ESV, righteousness. Some translations have faithfulness. But you find it in verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, God. You'd be right to do that. It's found in verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. It's found in verse 16. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. 
It's found in verse 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. And then it's found again in verse 24. My tongue will talk of your righteousness or your righteous help all the day long. And so five times in this psalm you find the righteousness or the faithfulness of God being brought out. And if you notice how he uses those terms, in the first place, in verse 2, it's the basis of his petition. He's appealing to God on the basis of the fact that God is just. He's righteous. He does what's right. He is in a covenant relationship with God. I believe we should not read the Psalms without remembering, every time we read the Psalms, the people that wrote the Psalms are in a covenant with God. The Old Testament Israelites were in a covenant. God established a covenant at Mount Sinai with them in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. And they were appealing to God and they were praying to God on the basis of the fact that they are in a relationship with Him. You might even go this far to say, we don't know God unless we have a covenant relationship with God. Nobody does. Unless we have a covenant relationship with God, we don't really know Him. And so the prayers and the petitions and the pouring out of one's soul and anguish, these kinds of things that happen in the book of Psalms, they are done in the context of a covenant with God. And that's why this is the basis of his petition. In your righteousness, deliver me. But not only that, righteousness is the subject of his preaching. If you look at verses 15 and 16, he wants to talk about God's faithfulness, about God's righteousness to other people. And then it's the content of his praise. Verse 19, I will praise you. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. And so when this, when this psalmist thinks about God, and he thinks about his relationship with God, He's thinking about the fact that he can appeal to God to do the right thing. He can talk to others and proclaim how God always does the right thing. And he also praises God for being righteous, for doing the right thing. Psalm 71 has a heavy emphasis on the righteousness of God, maybe more so than any other psalm in the 150 psalms that we have. That's all preliminary. Let's look, as we look at Psalm 71, at three ideas, three concepts. As we grow older in our lives, there are some things, first of all, that we need to keep saying to God, verses 1 through 8. Secondly, there are some things we need to keep asking from God, verses 9 through 16. And then finally, there are some things that we need to resolve to do for God, verses 17 through 24. The reason I've divided the psalm this way is because there are three sections of eight, and each of these three sections ends with praise. So if you look, for example, at verses 1 through 8, verse 8, he turns to praise. He talks to God, he prays to God, but in verse 8, he praises God. And then in the second section, when you get to the end of that section, verses 15 and 16, once again, he praises God. And then at the end of the third section, in verses 22 through 24, he turns again to praise. And so that's the way we've chosen to structure the text in our lesson this afternoon. This man resolves to say some things to God, to do, ask some things of God, and to do some things for God as he grows older. As we grow older, as our bodies begin to change and to, um, to stop working sometimes, as we, as we grow older in the first place, this psalm instructs us to keep saying some things to God. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 together. Psalm 71, beginning in verse 1. The aged psalmist says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. 
Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. He's thinking about his future. Maybe he's about to retire from the priesthood. Maybe he's about to go into the great unknown. What do you do after you're age 50 as a Levitical priest? What do you do with the rest of your life? He's praying about these things. And I want you to notice that this man's hope for his future is not found in the wealth that he's accumulated. There's not one word about that. His hope for his future is not found in his achievements or his elaborate plans for where he's going to retire and what he's going to do with the rest of his days. His hope for the future is not found in this passage in his friends and family or in his health or even in his reputation. He's not mentioning any of these things. Instead, look, it's like a drumbeat in these eight verses. He emphatically declares to God that his hope is found in God. He's saying repeatedly, God, you're my hope. You're my refuge. You're my deliverer. You're the one for me. You're the one in whom I have my confidence. Look again at at the phrases that we just read. I take refuge in you, verse 1. You are my rock and my fortress, verse 3. You, O Lord, are my hope. I have leaned upon you all my life, he says in verse 6. We have a history together, God. We've been together all these years. In verse 6 again, my praise is continually of you. Incidentally, as you look at Psalm 71, there is a strong emphasis on always or all my days or forever. There's an emphasis on that kind of terminology. My praise is continually, always of you. In verse 7, you, God, are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, verse 8. This man has a rich relationship with God. And he has chosen, as he grows older, to do this. He has chosen to say to God, God, you're the one for me. When young people go out on dates, it is honoring when someone, when a young man says to a young lady, you're the one for me. There are a lot of other women in the world, but you're the one for me. I, I, you, you have my heart. You have my eyes only. And, and you're the one that I look to, and you're the one that I hope in, and you're the one that, I'm, uh, that I long to be with. It honors her when he says, to the exclusion of all others, you're the one for me. And here's the psalmist saying that to God. God, to the exclusion of everything else, as I grow older, as my body is not what it used to be, as my future is uncertain... I'm not putting my trust in anything else. I'm putting my trust in you. I love Psalm 71, verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. Does he think God's not going to be that? Does he think God's not going to be a rock of refuge? No, but he's just saying, you're the one that I'm going to look to when I'm in trouble. You're my rock of refuge, and every time I need you, every time I'm in trouble, I'm coming to you. And the neat thing about this God put this in his Bible so that you and I can think about, as we grow older, you and I can think about where we can go when we don't know where else to go. Be to me a rock of refuge (coughs) to which I may continually come. Again, as you think about this, this section, saying some things to God, notice some things about God in this passage. In the first place, 
God never grows weary of blessing his people. If you look at verses 3 and 4, he never gets tired. I'm going to continually come to you, God. Is God ever going to get to a point where he says to the psalmist, No, I'm tired of hearing from you. You've asked too much from me. He never grows weary. In James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, James tells us we ought to ask for wisdom from God, and he says this. He says, God gives to all generously and without reproach. Remember? You know what that means? God never gets to a point where he gets aggravated by our requests. He never gets tired of us coming to talk to him and ask things from him. That's what that passage means, and that's what this is. This passage is implying as well. God, I'm going to keep coming to you. <coughs> I'm going to keep seeking your, your grace and your guidance. A second thought about this, you know, our prayers, the way we pray, they indicate how much we think we need God. As we pray, as we address God, the frequency of our prayers, the content of our prayers, the requests and the petitions that we make in our prayers, they are an indicator of how much we think we need God. You remember the Pharisee stood up in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14? God I'm thankful I'm not like other men. He's not requesting anything from God. He's just telling God how great he is. That's all he wanted God to know. I'm, I'm doing really well, God. And Jesus says, but then there was a publican who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven and smote his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The way we pray shows something of how much we need God. And especially as we grow older, it's important for us to talk to God about how much we need him. It's important for us to say these things to God. God, you're my refuge. You're my rock. You're my deliverer. You're, my, you're the one that I praise. And then third, as we look at these first eight verses, our praise indicates how joyful we are about God, how content we are in God. Our praise indicates that. The, the, the joy that we have in God, the contentment we have in God, again, verse 6, we have a history, God and I. From my youth, he's been my God. And he's been with me. And then verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise. It's not just a little bit of praise. I'm saying some nice things about him. My mouth is filled with his praise and with his glory all the day, all day long. There are some things as we grow older that we would be wise to keep saying to God, all of us. You know, as people grow older and aches and pains begin to become part of a routine in life and we're not able to do what we once were able to do and, and, and those kinds of things. It's easy to start talking to other people. It's easy to start talking to, you know, about our circumstances and even complaining about some of those things and well worthy of complaint a lot of those issues are. But what are we saying to God? How are we speaking about Him and to Him? Instructively, this passage, Psalm 71 verses 1 through 8, is all about God. You, 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 you're my God. Now second, as you look at this psalm, Psalm 71, the psalm of the silver-haired, the psalmist resolves to keep asking some things of God. In verses 1 through 8, he's saying things to God about who God is to him, what God means. But then in verses 9 through 16, he's going to ask some things of God. And there are two requests especially. Look at verse 9, that's the first request. Do not cast me off in the time of old age, Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Every one of us, as we live our lives, we're spending our strength. The things we were able to do when we were 20, 
we're maybe not able to do when we're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. We're spending our strength. And one day the psalmist realizes it's inevitable. There's going to come a day when I wake up and some of the things I was able to do yesterday, I'm not able to do today. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. The inevitability of old age. God, be with me. And that's the neatest thing about the prayer in verse 9. He's not saying, God, give, give back to me what I was able to do. He knows the realities of old age. He knows the realities of the passing of time. But he says, God, don't you forsake me. Stay with me when my strength is spent. Because God, if you'll be with me, if you're there, then everything will be as it should be in my life. Don't forsake me when my strength is spent. And then the second request is in verse 12. And it's very similar. Oh God... Be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. Now that request, again, God be with me. You know, one of the greatest promises in the Bible is the promise, I will be with you. When God says to people, I will be with you, do not be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. That is maybe the greatest promise that God's ever given. Because the best thing God could ever give anybody is himself. His own presence. That's the absolute best thing God could ever give. And so, when God says to somebody, I'm going to be with you, what else do you need? You don't need a plan or a roadmap for the future. You don't need an explanation of how you're going to pay for your bills, your bills 10 years down the road. You don't need those things. If God says, I'm with you, you have what you need. And here's the psalmist saying, Oh God, verse 12, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. Do not forsake me when my strength is spent. Don't cast me off in the time of old age, verse 9. And look at the specifics of his request in verses 10 and 11. This aging psalmist, it appears, has some enemies. In verse 10, he says, For my enemies speak concerning me, and those who watch for my life consult together. And they say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. He's praying for deliverance from his enemies. We're left to wonder who his enemies might be and what they might be all about. Even today in our society, crimes against senior citizens are especially egregious, aren't they? People taking advantage of those who are aged aged and not able to defend themselves. People who take advantage of maybe a, a slower mental acuity that somebody might have. People taking advantage of those things. Those are egregious crimes. And there are people in our society who will make themselves the enemies of those who are aged. And maybe this man's experiencing some of that. Maybe, maybe there are some young upstarts who are very talented and very skilled and have a lot of energy. And they are saying things together about this elderly man as he's writing Psalm 71. And they're saying, let's put this man out to pasture. He's been in his role long enough. We want to supplant him. We want to get rid of him. God has forsaken him, verse 11. Pursue and seize him. There's no one to deliver. Maybe they're doing that. And maybe that's what the psalmist is upset about and praying for deliverance from. It also doesn't take a lot of imagination to do this. To personify some of the ailments of old age. Think about this. What if his enemies, in verses 10 and 11... What if his enemies are weakened limbs or failing health or some kind of disease? Because those things can bring some cruel and some unjust limitations to our lives, can't they? 
and those enemies personified, God deliver me from these. They, they've seen me and they've, they've decided that they're going, to, they're going to cause trouble in my life. God deliver me from these things. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about that. As a gospel preacher, there are people that when I see them come to worship, I'm just amazed because I've, I've tried to put myself somewhat in their shoes. And as I'm starting to show the signs of age even in my life, and by the way, older people always tell me, John, you're a spring chicken. You've got a long way to go. I get that. I understand. But there are people that get up on Sunday morning in our congregations, and they look at their shoes, and they have a conversation with their shoes. They say, okay, shoes, are we going to do this today? We're going to get these on my feet today? And it's a struggle just to do that. And the idea that some of our brethren wake up on Sunday morning and they struggle to put on their shoes, but they do it because they love the Lord and they love the church, and then they make their journey to the worship service and they're there, that ought to encourage us. And we as God's people, we ought to appreciate and praise. Some people are facing some enemies that you and I don't face. And they're struggling with some things that you and I don't struggle with. And most of the time, most of the time, we kind of make jokes about these things. and We laugh about these things because what else are you going to do? But here's a psalmist and he's talking about these things. And he's saying, God, verse 9, don't cast me off in the time of old age. When people are tempted to feel forgotten, when people are tempted to feel abandoned, you go visit a nursing home and a skilled nursing care center, and you talk to the people that are there that are residents. Many of them have those feelings of abandonment and having been forgotten, having been cast off. God, don't you do that to me in my time of old age. We need to be sensitive to what people are going through as age takes its toll in their lives. But then, then, look at verse 13. May my accusers be put to shame. May they be consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But then in verse 14, there is a but. And it's amazing and instructive. As much as the psalmist seems to have going on, and as much anxiety and difficulty as he seems to possess, the psalmist decides he's going to praise God. <clears throat> he deliberately turns his thoughts to hope and praise of God. I will hope continually, he says in verse 14. You know what that means? God, I'm going to be patient. I will hope continually. I'm going to be patient. But he doesn't stop right there. He goes on in verse 14. He says, I will praise you yet more and more. He's already said, my mouth is full of your praise in verse 8. But I'm going to praise you even more, he says in verse 15. Isn't that interesting? Verse 14, I'm going to praise you more and more. He's going to continue to worship and to worship with all of his heart. He goes on in verse 15. He says, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts. Who's he going to tell? People that will listen. Those that are younger than him. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number, that is, the number of your righteous acts, the great things you've done, their number is past knowledge. What's he going to do? He's going to be patient. He's going to worship. He's going to continue to proclaim God's goodness and God's righteousness and God's salvation. He wants to keep talking about these things. He says in verse 16, With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them, the people that listen, I will remind them of your righteousness. There's that word. Yours alone. God, you do what's right. And I want to keep telling people about that. I want to reflect on your mighty deeds. I want to talk about your mighty deeds. And I want to tell others about these things. I want to remind them of your righteousness. As we grow older in our lives, we need to keep asking some things from God. 
couple of observations before we move on. In the first place, there's no difficulty we face that's too small for his attention. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Not only that, but there's no enemy so great that God's unable to help us. Whether it's people that are trying to put us out to pasture, whether it's the physical things that we struggle with, whatever our enemies are, there's no enemy so great that God is unable to help us. And then it's also instructive to think about... I'm sorry, I'm trying to find You're good. the timer because that was all. Sorry. No, no problem. I'm good. Yep. We got time. We're good. <clears throat> it's also important to think about this. We need to ask things from God. As we struggle with our health, as we struggle with the indignities of growing older, as we struggle with some of the some of the inevitabilities of growing older, we can talk to God about those things. James says in James 4 verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And oftentimes Christians don't have, they don't possess blessings from God because we don't ask those things from God. I will hope continually and I will praise you yet more and more, he says in verse 14. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait on my God. Third, as you look at Psalm 71 and you think about this passage and its implications for growing older, look at verses 17 through 24. We must resolve to accomplish some things for God. We must resolve to accomplish some things for God. Verse 17, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Stop right there. He'll go to praise in verses 22 through 24. As long as this this psalmist lived, he didn't want to retire from serving God. Think about if the theory that this is a Levitical priest nearing the end or maybe just past the end of his term of service He's 50 years old, and now he's not going to be able to serve in the temple anymore. If that's what he's doing, now he's saying, I still don't want to retire. Even though God's word says I'm not able to serve in the temple anymore, as long as I live, I want to find opportunities to serve God. And it's instructive, too, that even though he talks about his enemies in verses 8 through 16, even though he talks about the the people that surround him or the circumstances that surround him and and how troubling they are, he still says, but I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to serve God and I want to find opportunities to praise and to teach others about God. And so after he prays for deliverance, he turns his attention to what he still might be able to do in God's service. Notice, as we did in our first point, what he does not do. He does not ask God for honor or for recognition or for comfort or for safety or for convenience or for luxury. He doesn't ask God for any of those things. All he asks is that he can continue to proclaim God's wondrous deeds. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. From my youth you've taught me and still I'm going to proclaim your wondrous deeds even to old age and gray hairs, O God. There's the phrase again, do not forsake me. You go back to verse 9, that's what he said. Don't forsake me when my strength fails. Stay with me, God, until until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who are to come. 
The might and the power and the righteousness of God, those are on his mind. The greatness of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the righteousness, the fact that God always does the right thing, those are on his mind. Back in the book of Exodus, in fact, just put your finger there in Psalm 71 briefly. Turn back to Exodus 13 and verse 14 in your Bible. Exodus 13, verse 14. And listen to what it says as as God's giving the Passover to the Israelites. Exodus 13, verse 14. In Exodus 13, 14. When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the, God, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What are the Israelites supposed to do? When their children ask, why are we, why are we observing the Passover? They're to tell the story. They're to talk about the righteousness, the mighty deeds of God. And that's what the psalmist has in mind back in Psalm 71. You can turn back there now. I want to proclaim your wondrous deeds to another generation. I want to tell the next generation about your goodness, about your righteousness, about your power. Not only that, but he expresses patience with God. As you look at verses 20 and 21, God, you've made me see many troubles and calamities, but you're going to revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you'll bring me up again. You'll increase my greatness and comfort me again. Notice the repetition again, again, again. Even though old age is beginning to take its toll, even though the circumstances of life are what they are, God, I put my trust and my hope in you. I believe this needs to be a staple of our proclamation of the gospel, that the future is as bright as the promises of God. And not only that, But for every child of God, the best is not behind us. The best is yet to be. That's what the psalmist seems to be hinting at here. There's no reason for us to go through life sorrowing as those who have no hope. And as a result of all this, the psalmist is resolving. He's wanting to connect with those that are younger than him. He's wanting to talk about God's greatness and goodness to those that are younger than him. Think about this, by the way. As we grow older resolving to accomplish some things for God. Where are the connections and opportunities in our lives as we grow older? To talk to others, to talk to people younger than ourselves about how good God is. Where are those opportunities in our lives? And would God provide more opportunities like that? I'm not talking about teaching a Bible class or preaching a sermon or doing anything like that. I'm just saying, if if I've got grandchildren and they come and they sit on my knee, why not talk to them about the great things God has done and is doing and will do? Why not talk to them about those things? That's what he's saying. And then as you look at verses 22 through 24, he turns one more time to praise. At the end of each of these three sections of eight, he turns to praise. I will also praise you. And he's saying, basically, I'm going to praise you in every way I can. With the harp for your faithfulness, O God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. I like as you read this psalm, and I I save this for last as we think about the features of the psalm. Read Psalm 71 again for homework. And look at how many times he mentions his mouth, his lips, his tongue, his words. Look at how many times in this psalm those are mentioned. And what strikes me is 
in my ministry, and I know in a lot of yours as well, when you visit those who are older, getting around is a chore sometimes. Sometimes people are bedfast. They're not able to get up at all. But you know what still works? Their mouth, their lips, their tongue. And here's the psalmist saying, God, you're the one for me. You're the only hope that I have. You're the only one I put confidence in. And I want to spend the rest of my days using my mouth to talk about you. And so even when our arms grow fail and our legs cease to, uh, frail and our legs cease to work, we can still praise with our mouths. And I want you to think about this as well. There came a time in Jesus' life when he couldn't touch the lepers and when he couldn't walk to another village because his hands and his feet were fastened by nails to a cross. But what did Jesus do while he was still on the cross? He opened his mouth and he used his mouth not only to pray and to speak to God, he opened his mouth and he blessed others. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Assuredly, I say to you, to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. There's going to come a time in all of our lives, if the Lord wills, and if we live long enough, there's going to come a time when our hands and our feet are not able to do what they used to be able to do. But with my words and my lips and my tongue and my mouth, I want to continue to proclaim God's praise. As you look one more time through Psalm 71, think about how this man speaks about God. He calls him my God, verse 4, verse 12, verse 22. You're not just any God, you're, you're my God. He calls him my rock, verse 3. He calls him my fortress, in verse 3. He calls him my hope, in verse 5 and in verse 14. He calls him my strong refuge, in verse 7. When I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was little, my mom and dad and others in my life, they, they came up with all kinds of nicknames for me, and they probably did that for you, your parents and, and, and others, came up with a lot of nicknames. And my mom always said this, a child who is loved is known by many names. Think of what it says about this psalmist and the many names he gives to God. My rock, my fortress, my help, my God, my deliverer, my refuge. We need, as God's people, to adopt a more biblical vocabulary for addressing and adoring the God we've known and that we've praised for so long. Someone who's loved is known by many names. And you can see that the psalmist as he advances in years, he's been with God for a long time and he has every confidence that God's going to be with him all the way to the very end. You and I, as we think about silver-haired saints and silver-haired psalms, we can turn our eyes to the God who cares for us from start to finish and even beyond into eternity. And thank God that he does just that. Thank you for being with us this afternoon.